Romans chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, it's certainly a wonderful crowd here tonight. Thank you for coming. And I was certainly encouraged last night and encouraged again uh, with just good attendance. And I know for many of you, uh, you have a commute and it's not easy to get here. And I'm just grateful that you made the effort to be here. And I trust God will give you something tonight from His Word. And so we're going to go to Romans chapter number 6. And the theme of the week, I believe that God has laid on my heart, is faith without works is dead. And God uses the analogy, as we talked about last night, of just like the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And it's a great analogy, and it certainly helps us understand that faith without any action is just like a corpse lying in a casket. It doesn't do anything. It has no impact. And uh, so we, uh, we certainly, uh, I trust, were helped by that last night and saw that uh, works or obedience is a means to a uh, perfected faith. Uh, other than that, works is a result of faith and it is a means for more faith. Okay, so if you got that, hopefully you here last night, you got that. So we're going to kind of go on a cousin message here, if we could say that. Romans chapter 6 deals with a problem. And it basically starts with a question, shall we continue in sin? Now, I will say this, this is not original with me, but Romans chapter 6 was addressing the problem, I want to sin. Anybody have that problem? Yeah, there's something part of us that says, I want to sin. Uh, shall we continue in sin is the question. Of course, it says that grace may abound. But the whole idea is of Romans 6, hey, I want to sin. I got a problem and uh, I need to deal with this. Now, Romans 7, which we're not going to deal with here tonight, deals with a different problem. You say, what's that? I want to do right. You say, that's a problem? Well, read Romans 7. It actually is. Because if you want to do right in your own strength, you're headed for failure. And so Romans 7 deals with a different problem, but Romans 6 deals with the problem of, shall I continue in sin? Hey, i got a sin problem. I've got a propensity towards sin, and I, uh, how, do, how do I handle that? And all of us in this room understand that. I remember several years ago, I uh, uh, was presenting this material at our, just had launched, I think, our RU program years ago at Falls Baptist Church, and uh, the addictions-based program, and uh, I... Um, I got up to preach to, uh, on Romans 6. I thought I'm going to deal with Romans 6. And so I came in there to deal with Romans 6. And I don't know how to explain this, but while I was preaching, it kind of hit me. We're all addicts. Now, we may not be addicted to alcohol, tobacco, or pornography, but we are. some in this room are addicted to worry. <laughs> some are addicted to unbelief. Some are addicted to, um, uh, to anger or frustration or irritation or whatever. Can I say this carefully? Probably everybody in this room has a besetting sin. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Preacher, I really don't think I do. Ask your spouse. They'd be glad to enlighten you. <laughs> yeah, okay. You get the idea. And if you're not married, well, one day you'll have a personal Holy Spirit to carry with you. No, I'm just teasing. I, I, I'm just, just teasing. Okay. But, you know, the point is, friends, uh, all of us in this room know that there's some things in our life we, we'd like to see some progress toward. And I believe Romans 6 gives us a pathway to victory. And it's really, I could say this, how to overcome addictions, how to overcome besetting sin. We could talk it uh, God's way of escape. So many ways we could frame it up. But let's dive into this Romans chapter 6. Now, pretty much anybody who preaches on Romans 6 has the same outline. You know why? Because we all have the same Bible, okay? Now, if you've got a different version, you might have a different outline. But anyway, uh, but if you're, uh, so here it is. You've got, you got three points. Here it is. You've got to know, and you've got to reckon, and you've got to yield. There it is. Okay, it's real simple. And I can say this. You've got to know the right facts. You've got to reckon or think the right facts. 
and then you have to, uh, uh, you have to act on the right uh, facts. So, first of all, if you notice here, the very first thing God tells us is you got to know. Would you look at verse number 3? It says, know ye not. If you look at verse number 6, it says, verse number 3, excuse, was know ye not. Verse number 6, knowing this. Verse number 9, knowing that. You get the idea God wants us to know something? Now, let me just simply say, sometimes we talk about salvation and we say salvation is more than head knowledge. And that is true. But you can't get saved without head knowledge. In other words, you cannot trust the gospel you don't know. And so it is with Romans chapter 6. Sometimes I would call Romans chapter 6 part of the gospel to the saint. It's the good news to saints that we don't have to live a defeated Christian life. And so uh, God says, you got to know something. you got to have some head knowledge here. So let's talk about knowing the right facts. You know, many times, if we don't know the right facts, guess what? We make bad decisions. I remember several years ago, uh, my, our family was on vacation. And part of our vacation is my dad preached a Bible conference for one of his converts who was a cowboy preacher out in Colorado. And they had a bunch of kids, so many kids, I can't even remember how many kids they had, but they had a lot of kids. And there were four of us. Uh, my older brother wasn't able to come on that. Four of us, and we kind of intermingled into their ages. And of course, we'd get together and it'd be a big hullabaloo. And he had a kind of an attic, an unfinished attic, where many of the kids slept and, and uh, up uh, some wooden stairs. And we were up there having a grand old time. And that cowboy preacher did not have a lot of tact. And so he just yells up the stairs, you better be quiet or I'm coming up there. Well, evidently they knew what that meant because it was like whoosh, total quiet. But have you ever worked with kids? They have amnesia. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And pretty soon they kind of forgot about what their dad had said. And the noise level got louder and louder and louder. There was no second warning. All we heard was cowboy boots on the wooden stairs coming up. I have never seen kids disappear faster in my entire life. I think they practiced. I mean, in barrels, underneath beds. I mean, I am telling you, they disappeared. I'm standing at the top of the stairs and hoping like crazy that because of my last name, I've got diplomatic immunity. You know what I'm talking about? And that preacher came up, I mean, came up that stairs. He looked around. You couldn't see anybody. There was me. It was like he didn't even look at me. He likely looked straight through me. And the only kid he could see was a kid who was sleeping. And I can vouch for that. In fact, that kid was not a part of the problem. He slept through the entire thing. And that cowboy preacher looked around, saw that kid, just lift him out of the bed at the same moment. He pulled his belt off. He gave that poor kid a whooping. And uh, then he dropped him. The kid fell back into bed and went back to sleep. <laughs> Probably thought he had a nightmare. You know, I'm talking about what happened. Now, I'm just telling you right now, that cowboy preacher meant well, but he didn't have all the facts. He made a bad decision. See, God says, I want you to know something, friends. And what do we need to know? And I want you to understand what we're about to go through is absolutely critical. He says, first of all, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now, obviously, uh, if you take a sponge and you baptize that sponge into water, I got a question for you. Is the water in the sponge or the sponge in the water? And the answer is, well, they're both true. So you take a new believer and you immerse them or baptize them. Notice I say immerse, but anyway, yeah, they immerse them or baptize them into Jesus Christ. Is Jesus in the believer or is the believer in Jesus? And the answer is, well, they're both true. And when you and I got saved, friends, we came into union with Jesus Christ, and that is an eternal union. And as a result of that union, friends, his history, as I think we said the other day, his history has become ours. 
so that when Jesus died, so did we. And when Jesus was resurrected, so were we. We have now become eternally a part of the Lord Jesus Christ and his history. Now you say, okay, preacher, I can see that. It's saying that. What's the significance? Look at verse number four. Therefore, as a result of this union, we are buried with him by this baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, in the passage of Scripture, in the next few moments, you're going to see a couple of times where something, a phenomenon in the Greek language is called the subjunctive mood. And the subjunctive mood is simply this. It's the mood of possibility. Often translated with may or might is the idea. Okay, so here's what Jesus is saying. As a result of our union with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we all have a brand new grand possibility. And that is that we can walk on this sin-cursed planet enabled, energized, animated by resurrection life. Capital R, capital L. Life's not an it, it's a person. His name is Jesus. You and I all have the possibility of walking in newness of life. Why? Because we're in union with resurrection life. So this union with Jesus gives us the grand possibility of walking in new, newness of life. Then, of course, verse number 5 helps us reiterate this. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And verse number 6 tells us another grand possibility. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, I want everybody in the room to understand something. Nobody in this room that's saved, nobody in this room has to say, that's saved, nobody has to serve sin. Can I say this carefully? He's not your boss anymore. Now, the Bible tells us the old man was crucified. Those that were the men on the whiteboard, you remember that center? The old man's gone. It's been crucified, and you have been regened. You have been regenerated. You got a new set of genes. You got a new spiritual genetic. You have been born again. Okay, and that now is who the real you is. Okay, but the Bible tells us that because the old man's gone, there's a new possibility. The body of sin, here's the subjunctive mood again, might be destroyed. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word destroyed is an interesting word because it can have a lot of nuances. So let's imagine after the service, one of the ushers comes up to you and says, I hate to tell you this, but one of the neighborhood kids got in the parking lot and they destroyed your car. Now, probably the first thing that would come to your mind is some kid out there took a stick of dynamite, threw it up your tailpipe, and turned your car into spare parts. You know what I'm talking about? That's probably the envision. That's what you'd envision. But what if the kid just came in, somehow got your hood open, and took some big wire cutters and just cut your battery cables? Two different destroyeds. One's obliterate, but the other kind of destroyed is, don't miss this, he just destroyed the ability of your car to operate. He rendered it ineffective inoperative. That's the word. It's destroyed, not in the sense of obliterate, it's destroyed in the sense of he's destroyed its ability to be effective and to operate. So what has been destroyed that way? What has been rendered ineffective? And the Bible says the body of sin. Now there are different views on the body of sin, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to give you the minority interpretation the one that I particularly take, if you take the majority interpretation, I don't think it affects bottom line, the practical application. But I'm going to give you what I think. I don't think it's talking about the human body. 
The majority uh, interpretation would. I think it's using the word body like we talk about body of truth. So body of sin would be this. It'd be the whole grouping out there, everything that is in the grouping or the body of sin. Every sin out there has lost its effectiveness in your life. It's no longer your boss. Now, let's talk about this for a moment because you might be thinking, how did that happen? I died. How, what does death have to do with it? Okay, let's take an illustration. Let's imagine that you were a slave before the Civil War or uh, in, in that uh, time of uh, American history. And as a result of being a slave, imagine that uh, you had a, a very cruel taskmaster. And imagine that he demanded seven days work, 14 hours a day. And let's just imagine he was unkind. He said unkind things, beat you on a regular basis. And pretty much you came to a point where life became insufferable. You could not go on. Now, there'd only be two ways out of that master-slave relationship. You think, I can't go on. The first one would be for you to get a new master. Maybe your master sell you or your master to die or whatever. That'd be one way out. The other way out would be this, for you, the slave, to die. Because the moment the slave dies, guess what? The taskmaster, the slave master, has no more power over you. So you may say this, before you and I got saved, we had a terrible, cruel taskmaster. His name was Sin. We could even say Satan, but his name was Sin, and Sin was a cruel taskmaster. And I will tell you, friends, when you got saved, the taskmaster didn't die, you did. Amen. Now, to kind of help you out this, let's imagine you pack some heat. Probably some of you are. But anyway, let's imagine you pack some heat tonight, and you went down to the local funeral home, and you decided to threaten the corpses. So you walk out there, you pull out your gun, you know, and, and your big style, and you uh, start pointing the gun at the corpses, and you say, buddy, you sit up or I'm going to uh, fill you full of lead. Do you know you have no power over that corpse? I don't care how much you threaten him. I don't care how much you bribe. I don't care what you do. You have no power over that corpse. You know why? He's dead. And every time a slave died, the taskmaster had no more power over him. And I want to tell you, friend, when you got saved, you may not have realized that you died and your old taskmaster, he lost his power over you. Amen. The body of sin has been rendered powerless. Now, let me give you another thought here to kind of help you understand this. Uh, let's imagine, uh, let's take it into 2024 since we live in modern day. And let's imagine you have a boss and he is a tough boss. I mean, insufferable. I mean, I mean, he mocks you, makes fun of you, gives you a hard time. You can never please him, never encourages you, calls you up in the middle of the night. Get in here right now on the double. We're, we don't have any work. You know, I'm just, just, and let's imagine after a while you think, I can't take this. Anymore. I cannot take this anymore. And so you go out and find another job and uh, you guys go into your boss's office and with a little delight you get you two weeks notice. I'm out of here two weeks. Two weeks later, you walk off the job, get in your car, walk off that property and think, I'm never coming back here. Let's imagine you go find your new job. I have a wonderful boss. You have wonderful people. You're just having the time of your life. Forgot all about the old boss. But let's imagine two or three weeks later, your old boss has found so much pleasure and so much satisfaction in making your life miserable. And now you're not there anymore. So one night he can't take it any longer. He picks up the phone. He calls you up at three in the morning and uh, he says, get in here on the double. I need you in here right now. Now I want to ask you a question. What would you do? 
What would you think about the person who would get up, get dressed, and go in and serve the old boss? You say, no way, man, I'm not doing that. He's not my boss anymore. And may I say this carefully? That is exactly what Jesus is trying to tell us right now tonight. The old, the old master comes around, doesn't he? Look at that filth. Yeah, be short with your wife. The old taskmaster, doesn't he still try to get you to do wrong? Doesn't he still call you up and say, get in here, do this? How foolish it is for us to get up, get dressed, and go in and serve the old taskmaster. He's not our boss anymore. And the Bible says he's been rendered powerless, ineffective. His body of sin's been destroyed. Why? Then henceforth, we should not serve sin anymore. He's not our boss. For he that is dead, what does the Bible say in verse number 7? For he that is dead is freed from sin. No longer are we in the bondage to sin. We've been freed. You say, okay, preacher, yeah, I'm seeing that. That's what the Bible says right here. And uh, now we could go through, uh, I think we've get, gotten the essence of these no verses. And uh, so we're going to move to the next one because we, we see this in verse number 11. So let's move to the next step. It says here, we could start in verse 10 as kind of, a, kind of a prep. It says, For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, here it is, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, one thing about it, for many of you that were here Sunday night, we've already dealt with that word reckon. Except that in James chapter 1, it was translated with a different word. Anybody remember the word? Count. See, it's an accounting term again. So this has nothing to do with emotions. It has nothing to do with how we feel. And what God is simply saying is, you need to, to take to the fact that at this very moment, you need to reckon or account the fact that in Jesus, I'm dead to sin. And in Jesus, I'm alive unto God. Now, may I say this carefully? I am not dead to sin in and of myself. I am only dead to sin because I'm in union with him who is dead to sin. And I'm not alive unto God in and of myself. I'm alive unto God because I'm in union with him who is alive unto God. Are you getting it? And God simply says you need to take out the ledger of life like we talked about Sunday night. And in this case, you need to write down dead to sin, alive unto God. And that is what is. And your new man, I'm telling you, as we said on Sunday morning for you men, your new man can't sin. It's dead to sin. You've been born from on high. And the Bible says it cannot sin. Uh, so uh, we, we, you say, okay, preacher, I'm seeing that, but... The question I got to ask is, sometimes I just feel like I just can't help it, like I just got to sin. Well, that's true, and all of us in this room would understand that. For there are some in this room, and all, really all of us in this room, there are certain aspects of besetting sin that seem to get us all too often. Even though we may know these truths, why do we fall prey? Seem to have such a propensity to have an angry response or such a propensity to get depressed or such a uh, propensity to doubt God or such a propensity fill in the blank. So you say, preacher, how does that line up with what you're trying to teach us tonight? I see what the Bible says, but it's not lining up with my experience. Well, maybe this will help you. You and I forget sometimes that you have an enemy who is a master illusionist. Now, don't get me wrong. Satan has more power than anybody in this room. But I can tell you this. Satan has way less power than God. So much so, it's not even fair to compare it. 
But I will say this, friends. He's really not as powerful as I think we think he is. His great power is his ability to deceive. In fact, when he goes to hell, Rome, uh, Isaiah 14 says this, that people in hell are going to say this, is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? In other words, they're going to say, you've got to be kidding me, this is Satan. I guarantee you that he's not what we think he is. Why does he seem so powerful? Because he's a master illusionist. Amen. He's good at it. Let me give an example. Please be honest tonight. How many would admit at least once in your life, if not more, you have been discouraged? Yeah, we all have. Way more than we'd like to admit. You know what discouragement is? An illusion. You know, when you and I get discouraged, you know what's happening? Satan, Satan is spinning around our perimeter, around our experience, lies. You say, how do you know that? Well, I've got to ask a question. At your most discouraged moment, what is God's attitude about what's going on? Is God up in heaven wringing his hands and thinking, this guy's got himself in the mess. I'm not sure I can handle it. it it's, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's irreverent almost to even say that, isn't it? Wow. No, God's not doing that. Here's what God's doing at your most discouraged moment. Okay, I got this started five years ago. Got this going three months ago. Got this over here going. Got this. He's got it all figured out. He's not discouraged at all. So why are we discouraged? Because we've bought into an illusion. And every time you and I get discouraged, every time, we have bought in to a lie. And what God is trying to help us understand is when the idea of reckoning is cutting through the lie and say, I choose to believe at this moment in Jesus, I'm dead to sin, alive unto God. And we reject the illusion and we embrace reality. Not based on our experience, but based on the truth of the Word of God. Now let me illustrate it if I could, because I know some of you are trying to grapple with this. Uh, a long time ago when my girls were little, which would probably be around the year 2000, I took to my two oldest, my youngest was too young to do this, but I took my two oldest on a homeschool uh, trip that our church had going at the time. A bunch of homeschoolers were going down to, to the museum where there was an IMAX, and uh, they were showing a documentary on flight. Now the IMAX in, um, I've been to several IMAXs since then, and most of the time it's just a big, huge flat screen, but this IMAX was not. It's like a half of an eggshell. So it is, it's immersive. You look behind you, you look in front of you, you look around you, and you're completely dominated by whatever they got going. So when they filmed it, they filmed it with multi-cameras and, and wet it together, so it's like half of an eggshell. So very immersive and very sensory. And it went down, down there. It was on flight, but I didn't realize it until I got down there. It actually was a documentary on the Blue Angels. So what they had done is they had stuck those cameras on the bottom of Blue Angel jets so you literally felt like you were a jet flying through the air. Like this, you know, like you know how they do and all the stuff they do. Very sensory, very immersive, and in fact so immersive that when the presentation was over, my daughters told me they saw two teenagers losing lunch at the garbage cans. Now i got a question. Why do those teenagers lose lunch? Because they were spinning? No. Don't miss this. They believed a lie. They bought into an illusion. And it affected them to that degree. So you say, well, preacher, what about you? Well, I'm going to tell you about me. 
Because I am telling you, it was quite the experience. And so here I am, I'm sitting in the seat, and uh, I'm looking at this thing, and I, 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 all of us have, I don't know how to explain this, all of us have conversations with ourselves, so uh, I'm going to kind of take some of my thought processes and turn it into a conversation. And I, I got a little theory, I can't prove it, but I believe everybody is compartmentally insane. You know what I'm talking about? There's a certain compartment of you that is just absolutely insane. Okay, so anyway, I'm going to have this, com- this, uh, this conversation with myself, and so here it is, I'm looking at this thing, and it's getting pretty immersive, and my stomach says I'm in trouble. It really did. My stomach was starting to feel like this is not going well. I mean, when you're spinning like this, you know, this is not going well. And my brain said to my stomach, now, stomach, be logical. We're not spinning. This is a screen. It's an illusion. And what really is going on is we're seated completely still and you don't have a thing to worry about. And you know what my stomach said? I'm still in trouble. (laughs) And the guy in front of me is going to really be in trouble. (laughs) if you don't do something fast. See what my brain said? Now, stomach, I'm going to prove to you. We're seated completely still. And so I took my eyes off the screen and I put them in the seats right next to me that were happened to be empty. And my stomach said, hey, we're seated completely still. Everything's great. My brain said, you should have listened to me a moment ago. And my stomach says, you know, I'm feeling better about this. My brain says, you know what? I don't want to miss this presentation. I paid good money for this thing. So, back up there, and man, this time the ground is spinning. You know what I'm talking about? And my stomach said, not doing so good again. And my brain says, okay, here we go. Boom. Now, don't miss this. When I took my eyes off that screen, and I put my eyes on the chairs, I was reckoning. I was rejecting the illusion, and I was embracing reality. My friend, every single time you and I are tempted, there is a way out. And the way out is to reject the illusion, the temptation that seems so strong and so powerful and so like I cannot resist it. I've got to do this and recognize it's a lie. Because in Jesus, I'm dead to sin. That part of me does not sin. And I'm alive unto God in Jesus Christ. You say, okay, preacher, I think I'm starting to get it. But let me just deal with one other misconception that's important we get it right. Reckoning does not make you dead to sin. And reckoning does not make you alive unto God. Reckoning simply acknowledges that you are. This is important to get. See, the point is, the truth is there, but it doesn't, it's real, but it's not yet realized. See, a lot of people live with understanding, uh, okay, I see what, I'm in Christ, I'm this, am I, but they, it's real, but it's not realized. You say, preacher, what has it got to do to be real that what's real to become realized. In other words, benefit me personally. Okay, let me give you an illustration. Let's imagine you were down at some botanical gardens, just beautiful gardens. I'm sure many of you have visited at least once in your life some kind of botanical gardens. And, and so let's imagine you're at some, and it's a perfect time of the year, and maybe blossoms, it's just beautiful, and you're on a tour. There's only one problem. You've got your eyes closed. So the tour guide is going around and, and people are ooing and aahing and they're taking pictures and they're just ex- having expressions of, of, of how beautiful it is. And all the while you're thinking, there's not anything here. There's nothing here. You know, what, what's going on? And now, is the, is the garden beautiful? And the answer is, sure it is. What's the problem? And the answer is, you've got your eyes closed. 
So how do you make that which is real become realized? And the answer is you open your eyes. Opening your eyes is reckoning. You ever going through your Christian life and some old saint of God says, isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't it just wonderful to be saved? You know a little bit about their lives and say, they don't have much going for them. How can they say that? Oh, yeah, Jesus is wonderful. And you're thinking, yeah, I'm glad I'm saved, but I, I don't know if I'd go that far. You know what the problem is? You got your eyes closed. That older saint doesn't have their eyes closed. They're awed by what, who Jesus is. Reckoning friend is opening your eyes and realizing what was already there, what is, is real, had now becomes realized. That's what reckoning is, friends. It's that step of faith where you and I say, I'm believing it. In Jesus, I'm dead to sin. In Jesus, I'm alive unto God. Okay, now that brings us to a third step. Okay, so we saw you got to know the right facts. You got to think the right facts or reckon the right facts. But look at verse number 12. We go now, you have to act on the right facts. Notice what it says. Let not sin, therefore. Therefore is now. We can take all of what we learned, shove it into therefore. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it. That's actually referenced back to the body in the lust thereof. In other words, friends, God's telling us, do not obey your flesh. You don't have to do that anymore. Your flesh is powerful, but you don't have to obey it anymore. So what it, when it says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that is what they call the present tense with the negative. And the present tense with the negative is ordering a cessation of action. You find that with love not the world? Really the idea of love not the world is stop loving the world. It's ordering a cessation of action of something that's already happening. And this is what's happening here. God is saying, stop letting sin reign in your mortal body. That's what he's saying. Can I get a little more practical? Here's what he's saying. Stop letting lust rule you. Lust isn't your boss anymore. Stop it. Stop letting anger call the shots in your life. Anger's not your king anymore. He doesn't rule you. Stop it. Stop letting worry control your life. Worry's not your boss anymore. Stop it. Did you get it? He's not coming at us. Remember, he's got the whole first part of Romans chapter 6. He's not getting in our face uh, up close and personal uh, just, uh, just out of the blue. It's based on the fact that in Jesus we're dead to sin, alive unto God. So he's saying, stop it. Because in Jesus you're dead to sin, alive unto God. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, preacher, I, I do need to stop it. I need to get victory. I need to stop letting sin reign in my mortal body that I should obey my body and the lust thereof. It's wrong, wicked desires, the flesh ruling my... No, I got I to gotta stop it. How do you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked the question because verse 13 answers it. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Now, don't miss this. It's the same present tense with the negative. He's saying, stop yielding your members to sin. Okay, now think about it. What are your members? And the answer is your body parts. Do you know it takes body parts to sin? Have you ever thought about that? Do you know there's some disabled people, there's certain sins they can't commit? Deaf people cannot listen to dirty jokes. Blind people cannot look at pornography. There are certain dis things that happen when people become disabled and they can no longer commit certain sins. You know why? Because it takes members. 
God is saying, stop yielding. And by the way, the word yield is not just passive. It's translated in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, by the brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye... Same word. See, yield and present are the same the idea. Sometimes we almost have the idea of, okay, here's a war, and somebody is a POW, and they yield, they surrender, and they go over, and they get in the POW camp, and they wait until the war's over. That's not the picture here. The picture is we're working for the devil, we yield to God, but we don't go to God's POW camp, we change uniforms, and we go to war for God. See, it's yield, present. It's not just passive, it is also active. Presenting is saying, okay, Jesus, reporting for dirty duty. What do you want me to do? Okay, so he says, stop yielding your body parts to sin and start yielding body parts to God. Okay, real simple. Now, here's a key phrase, and this is where a lot of people miss it, and as a result of missing it, they find themselves still defeated. So look at it again. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God, and here's the key, as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. May I say this? You are not yielding your flesh unto God. If you yield your flesh unto God, it's a traitor and you will be done. It's yielding yourself as those that are alive from the dead. It's realizing that in union with Jesus Christ, the new man, you're yielding yourself as saying, okay, I am in union with the one who is resurrected. It is that part of me that is in union with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus Christ, and I'm yielding that to God. In other words, I'm saying, the new man, you're the one calling the shots, not the flesh. So it's independence upon resurrection life. And dependence upon the Holy Spirit. If you've ever read the work, book 0100, you could insert it right here. It's trusting Jesus to enable you to do what you can never do unless he enables you to do it. It's not flesh dependence. It is God dependence based on your union with Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's a very important part here. And so he says, yield yourself as those who are alive from the dead and uh, your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, much more could be said. Great passage. I can't deal with it all. But you might say, what in the world does that look like? How do you do that? How do you, okay, stop yielding body parts to sin and start yielding body parts to God and to righteousness. And so what does that look like? Well, that's a great question. And so God gives us another verse that is unbelievably practical. Look at verse 19. It's kind of blunt. And it's in a certain sense gets right in a, up close kind of in our face. He says, I speak after the manner of men. In other words, I'm going to get real human with you. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. You just don't get this. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Say, so what's that talking about? Okay, it's really an uncomfortable verse. It's an analogy that none of us would dare to make unless it was inspired. Uncleanness in the Old Testament largely is ceremonial uncleanness, like leprosy and things like that. In the New Testament, it's pretty much that way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. But once you get into the epistles, uncleanness is no longer ceremonial, it is moral. Many of the lists talk about sexual sin, you find the word uncleanness. It's an uncomfortable word. 
And so what God is simply saying here, the same way you yielded your body parts to uncleanness is the same way you yield your body parts to cleanness. See, the same way you, lead your, you, you, you yield body parts to lying are the same way you yield your body parts to truthfulness. The same way you yield your body parts to grievous words are the same way you yield your body parts to a soft answer. Are you starting to get it? Amen. In other words, it's like this. You say, preacher, how do you yield yourself unto God? God is saying, well, I can tell you how to do it. It's just like you yield your body parts unto sin. And since you're really good at that, you have plenty of examples. It's kind of it's stunning. It really is. So let's try to be appropriate, but careful, but try to give you a couple of illustrations. So let's imagine your wife texts you at work. You ever had this happen, man? Honey, could you stop by the store? And I need some milk, and I need some bread, and I need some eggs. Now, please pardon me, ladies, but why is it always milk, bread, and eggs? Couldn't it be something a little more exciting? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so, so you're a good husband, and you say, sure, honey, I'll stop by and get the milk, bread, and the eggs. Okay, you ever been there? How many men have ever been there? You know what I'm talking about, being a good husband. And So you stop by the grocery store, you get the milk, the bread, and the eggs, and the ice cream. <laughs> you say, the ice cream wasn't on the list. Well, honey, it was on sale. I saved you money. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You throw it back, man. Here's how you do it. You reverse it back on them. Okay, but anyway, okay, so I always get that ice cream. Okay, so you know how it is. And uh, so you're, you're, you're trying to be a good husband, and you got the stuff, and you have the cart, and you're pulling up to the lanes. You're going to pay for it and go home. You didn't come here for this. All of a sudden, a sensual magazine cover. I really personally think it's tragic that in the United States of America, you cannot check out groceries without being confronted with sensuality. I think that's tragic, personally. But here you are, you didn't come for that. You had no desire to go there for that. But boom, here you are, checking them out, trying to do the right thing. Boom, you see something that you know is inappropriate. And hopefully by now you've trained yourself to immediately look away. But at that moment, you are now with a temptation. So what happened when you yielded to uncleanness? Well, you took body parts. You took your neck muscles. You turned your neck back toward the magazine cover. You took your eyes. You focused on it. Then you allowed the sensual image to come in your brain and you meditated. I'm using that word on purpose. You meditated. We also call that lust. Okay, on the brain. Okay, try to be careful, but that's, that's the dynamic. Okay, so body parts were used to sin. Okay, so God is saying, just like you yielded to uncleanness, now you need to yield to cleanness. So here you are, you see the temptation. You look away, and at that moment you say, in Jesus I'm dead to sin. Lust is not my boss anymore. I'm alive in the God. I'm in Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. So instead of taking those body parts going back toward lust, you take your body parts and go a different way. So you take those same neck muscles, but now you look toward the ceiling. Every man ought to know what the ceiling of your grocery store looks like. There's cobwebs up there. That light's out. They ought to really replace that light up there. Man, that is really a dirty roof. I had one guy said, Preacher, I don't know anything about the roof, but I can tell you all about the tile. They need to replace it. Okay, you'll get that. Whichever way you want to go, is up. it's up to you. But you get the idea. And you look up there, and you're, uh, you're distracted away. And then what you do is you meditate on purity. Where's that? Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is pure. <laughs> John 15, 5, now you clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. Ephesians 5, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word. I want to ask you, if you were mugged, would you like to have a little pistol, a 22, or would you like to have a, a, a machine gun? <laughs> you know, friends, in fact, that's some of the argument that some of the ladies are now making when it comes to gun control. They say, we need, we need big munitions, 
if we're ever in danger. But the idea is you want something that's, yeah, you'd like a machine gun. So I'm going to tell you something. I, I've told many men this. If you're really dead serious about purity, memorize every book in the, uh, verse in the book of Proverbs that has anything to do with a strange woman. You find them in chapter 2. You find them in chapter, uh, uh, actually all of chapter 5, last half of 6, all of chapter 7, last part of 9, and then there's verses in chapter 23. And I encourage you to memorize them all. You know what you'll have? A machine gun. Amen. A machine. Remove thy way far from her. Come not nigh the door of her house. For she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell going down to the chambers of death. Well, that's a nice picture. But that's truth. Yeah, see, so the point I'm making, friends, is you take the same sequence that you yielded to uncleanness. Now, because of who you are in Jesus, dead to sin, alive unto God, you take that same sequence and yield to cleanness. Okay, let's use another one. Uh, let's imagine that um, um, your spouse just has your buttons. I mean, just, I mean, they do. They just have your buttons. And, and so we'll just, I'm going to just do the male-female. You could flip it if you're a lady. But, uh, so let's imagine, uh, husbands, you come home and your wife just hits the buttons. I mean, she hits the buttons. She pulls the lever. And all of a sudden, you can sense it. You can sense the lava coming up the esophagus. You know what I'm talking about? Shh. And, uh, and all of a sudden, at this moment, uh, you know what you do? You take body parts, mouth, lips, and you begin to frame grievous words, which stir up. Yeah, and you got to fight. You got to fight. So everybody knows how to do that, I would think, at least in some degree, to say some smart aleck remark that kind of doesn't help the situation. It begins to escalate it. Okay, so let's imagine uh, uh, the same thing happens. You come home, wife's had a bad day, and she hits the buttons, pulls the lever, and the lava starts coming up. You say, wait a second. Anger's not my, grievous words are not my boss anymore. Anger's not my boss anymore. And so, so you take those same body parts, and instead of yielding your lips, your mouth, and your tongue to grievous words, you yield them to a soft answer. You look lovingly at your wife and say, that's all right, honey. We really didn't need that car anyway. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I'm just, just joking, okay? You get the idea. Okay, but uh, yeah, okay, you get the idea. You say, preacher, that sounds impossible. Well, that's what Romans 6 is trying to tell us. We are talking about divine intervention here. This is, not, this is not human beings doing better. This is not through flesh dependence. This is through living out who we are. We're in union with the Holy Spirit, with the one who does not sin. And when you get a hold of that, you begin to realize, wow. So Romans chapter 6 is real simple. If you know the right facts and reckon the right facts, but you don't yield, you will be defeated. If you yield, it's like this, or if you yield, I should say this, you're going to yield. You're either going to yield the sin, the old boss, or you're going to yield to righteousness, the new boss. You're going to yield. Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. But if, friends, we don't take the step of obedience like we talked about last night, guess what happens? The knowing and the reckoning didn't, didn't do anything if you don't yield with obedience. Believing that in Jesus I'm dead to sin, I don't have to be angry anymore. I don't have to be frustrated at the spouse anymore. I don't have to have that edge anymore. I don't have to. Why? Because in Jesus, I'm dead to sin. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't sin. And he is now who I'm in union with. He's the center of my being. I've been born from on high. I'm born from above. Wow. Are you getting this, friend? If you're not getting excited, you're missing it. <laughs> None of us in this room have to be defeated. If we get a hold of this. None of us do. I remember I was preaching in the state of Minnesota. And um, youth pastor at the time at Falls Baptist Church asked me, he said, Brother Van Gelder, and he said, I'm going to take the kids on a, on a camping trip. And we're going to go up to the Boundary Waters in the state of Minnesota. Anybody, I'm just curious, familiar with the Boundary Waters in the state of Minnesota? I don't think we have anybody that, uh, or maybe one or two. Okay, but uh, there's some lakes up on northern Minnesota that go into Canada. That's why they're called the Boundary Waters. And literally, if you know what you're doing, you can get in a canoe and you can canoe into Canada without going through customs. So back in COVID, if you wanted to get into Canada without getting a COVID shot, that's where you go. Okay, just canoe right into Canada. And so um, if you need your Tim Hortons cup of coffee, okay, that's how you get in. Okay, but anyway, so we were going to do, we were going to do a camping trip. And he said, Brother Van Gelden, would you come along and be the preacher? Now, I'm going to just be dead honest with you. My dad, we didn't go camping. My dad's idea of camping was the Holiday Inn. I'm just telling you the truth. We did not camp. Uh, kids would talk about going camping. I thought, what's that? I, I didn't know. Okay, so that's how I grew up. So I don't know how to camp. I really don't even know how to prepare for it. And by the way, an RV is not camping. You get this idea. Okay. Uh, so anyway, so um, uh, I prepared the best I could and um, uh, went up there and, and uh, got up there. And, and I'm telling you this, it, it was, it, it, I mean, we were remote. Cell phones wouldn't work. I know for some of you Gen Zers, you're just total meltdown right now. But anyway, uh, cell phones didn't work. And you had to literally cup water. You had to scoop it out of the lake and it had an orange tint in it. You had to put a pill in it. You know, it's just like, what in the world? You know, and uh, this kind of thing. And just, I mean, it was roughing it. So we had a lake and the guys were on one side, girls on the other side. In the middle, there was an island. And that's where we did all the cooking and the preaching and all that kind of stuff. And you had to canoe everywhere. And uh, that was just kind of what we were doing. And it was quite the trip. It really was. And so... Um, uh, I remember it was toward the end of the week. And oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, the state bird is everywhere. If you ever go to Minnesota in the summertime, the state bird will be everywhere. You say, what's their state bird? The mosquito. Okay, I mean, and I'm telling you, it is the state bird. I am telling you, they are huge. Okay, so anyway, so we're up there fighting for our lives. You know how it goes. And um, um, so one night we go over there and we're about ready to, going to have the preaching before the supper time. And, and so I got up to preach. And of course, I'm, I'm preaching outside. I think it was the first time in my entire life I ever preached in Denham. Okay, first time ever. And Brother Ingram well, no, that is, that is the slide. Okay, it began right there. Okay, but anyway, and so um, I, I was right there preaching on that island, and um, I preached on Romans chapter 6. Now, these are high school kids. I'm thinking, I don't know if they're going to get this or not, but the Lord laid it on my heart. In fact, as we were canoeing over there, there was a young man named Matthew, and he had literally been brought along on that canoe trip to do one thing. You say, what's that? Pray. Yeah, but that's kind of a unique idea. Bring one guy along, and all he does, he didn't do any of the activities. Oh, he just came to the services and came to the meals, and the rest of the time, he would pray for the meeting. Okay, and, and he had a real heart for God. And, and so we're, uh, I'm getting ready to go over to preach, and Matthew and I hop in a canoe, and as we're canoeing over, he said, Brother Van Gelder, and he said, I was meeting with the Lord this afternoon, and the Holy Spirit told me that God's going to meet with us tonight. I said, Matthew, I think you're right. God's done that work in my own heart. I believe you're right. I think God's going to do something tonight. So we got over there and the kids got sat down. I began to preach Romans chapter six. I don't know how to explain this. Came time for the invitation. Gave the invitation. There's nowhere to go. I said, if God's touched your heart about Romans chapter six, I just 
Get on your knees right where you are. Start to talk to God about it. Do some reckoning. I remember a bunch of kids got on their knees. I don't know how to explain this. Many of them met with God, but pretty much all of them finished. And there was one little girl. She was on her knees, and she kept on her knees. And they dismissed the meeting, and she was still on her knees. Then they started cooking over here, and pots and pans are clanging. She's still on her knees. People are walking around talking, and I don't know how to explain this. like she was oblivious to everything else. She was meeting with God. I didn't talk to her at that time, but about six months later, we began a conversation. Here's what she said to me. Many things, but here's what she said. She said, Dr. Jim, i got to tell you, Romans chapter 6 has changed my life. And may I say it carefully? It can change your life too. Can I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? Heads bound and eyes closed. Theme this week has been faith without works is dead. Thing I love about this passage, oh, it's got faith in it. Reckon is a faith word. Knowing, reckoning. But oh, I'm telling you, the action step is yield present. Yield present. Obey. Take a step of obedience, taking your body parts. And instead of yielding them to uncleanness, you yield them to purity. Instead of yielding them sin, you yield the righteousness. You take steps toward doing what's right, trusting God for the grace to enable you. Kind of what we talked about last night, but giving us a little more of a theological foundation. Now, if you're here tonight and say, preacher, as a Christian, either God has rekindled uh, my understanding about Romans 6. Uh, there was time I understood it, and, but it's kind of fallen away. I haven't really lived in Romans 6, and God tonight has re-stirred my heart about Romans 6. Or you might say, tonight... God has opened my eyes to understand Romans 6 in a way I have not yet understood it. And by the grace of God, in either case, I want to embrace what God has done in my heart today, tonight, in illuminating Romans 6. Would you just lift your hand as an indication if God did a spiritual illumination work? Thank you very much. You can put your hands down. Now here's what I'm going to, if God touches your heart to do this, I'm going to encourage you to just send just a moment, have an invitation to come down and yield. You know what an invitation is? It's an opportunity to yield, present. It's an opportunity to say to your foot, one of your body parts, okay, take a step. And then to say to the other foot, take a step. And you yield your body parts to what God wants you to do. And let me encourage you, if God wants you to do that, you do it. You do whatever God tells you to do. Would you just stand to your feet right where you are, heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and no one's looking. In just a moment, our pianist will begin to play. And if God has touched your heart, I really do encourage you. Would you come down and do some reckoning? <laughs> just in a certain sense. Just yield your body parts and come down and kneel and tell God, I, I thank you, I'm dead to sin in Jesus. Alive unto God in Jesus. As the piano plays, you do what God tells you to do.